to start the year. We have started the year by talking about happiness. Great way to start a year. Who doesn't want to be more happy? And so we have been talking about that, trying to answer the question, does Jesus actually give you a better life? Does Jesus actually give you a better life? Is what Emily just said in her hope story true? Or is this like, do we just feed people scripts to lie and video? Or is it really true? Is it, is it true that Jesus gives you a better life? Does, does a person who follows Jesus have a happiness advantage? This is a question we've been trying to answer. And culture would laugh at that question. Culture and society would, would laugh at that question because not only does Christianity, they would say, not give you a better life. It gives you a worse life. It's repressive and old-fashioned. It's a straitjacket. It's, it's, it's hoops to jump through and hurdles to jump over. Not only will it not make you happier, it will make you miserable. This is what society and culture would say, that Christianity is not going to make you happy. But then Jesus, our example, if our faith is in Christ, Jesus shows up and says that I've come that you may have life and have life to the full. And so Jesus says the purpose of him coming to the earth was so that we could have a full life. And culture says Christianity is for the naive. It's for the, it's, it's, it's repressive. And every person in this room has to decide who's telling the truth. Is Jesus telling the truth that he is the way to life and life to the full? Or is society and culture and the world telling the truth that you need to run from this place as fast as you can well, you're in church and I'm a preacher, so you probably guess the answer is Jesus is telling the truth. Jesus is telling the truth, but not only that, but some of the smartest scientific minds in the world would agree with Jesus. Health experts would say that, yes, Christians have a happiness advantage, and even the non-Christian health experts would say that. Now, we've shown you these stats each week. Um, but I want to show them to you one more time as we close out this series. It's from Harvard professor Tyler Vanderwill and journalist John Seneff. They wrote an op-ed in the USA Today about religion. And this is what they found, that those who regularly attend church services are more optimistic, have lower rates of, de- rates of depression, less likely to commit suicide, are, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, are more self-controlled. And they even found that people who regularly attend church or worship service lower mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. So everybody's mortality rate's 100 eventually. But over a 15 to 20-year period, even, believe, even having a faith and, and, and going to a worship service lowers those mortality rates. And atheist uh, social psychologist Jonathan Hatt said, surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious, religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood, which is a great time to plug our blood drive coming up Friday because Christians are way better at giving blood. So you can do that. You know, be a Christian and get Blood Friday. We have spots open. Use the app, okay? We'll plug there. But science and scripture tells us what Jesus said, that he's the way to the fullest life. He's the way to that feeling that you want to have. Now, faith in Jesus is way more than a feeling. You know that. I hope you know that. 
But a lot of times that feeling is the gateway. It gets you in the door. I don't want to feel this way anymore. And, and Jesus is the hope that changes those feelings. So Jesus knew what he was talking about all along. That the happiest you will ever be is when your life is fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. Hear me. The happiest you will ever be will be when your life is fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And the most miserable you will ever be is not when you are as lost as you can be. The most miserable you will ever be is when you're half and half. You don't really want to be a Christian, but you really don't want to not be a Christian your wife or your kids made you come or your spouse made you come or there's social societal pressure or you grew up in church. You don't really want to do it, but you got to do it. And so you're either a bitter Christian or a hypocritical Christian and you don't want to do it and you don't even believe it's really all it's cracked up to be, but you kind of do it. That will be the most miserable you will ever be. But the happiest you will ever be will be a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you believe that. I'm not naive enough to think that everyone in the room believes that, but I, I hope you do. And if you don't, I hope you just keep coming back until you do. Because I believe if you keep coming back, there's something about this place. There's something about these people. There's something about the Holy Spirit that will gradually, step by step. Yes, there are single moments that define our spiritual lives. But most of the greatest change that will happen in your life will be a day at a time, an inch at a time, a prayer at a time, a sermon at a time. And you look back at one point and you realize, you know what? My faith is in Jesus Christ and I've never lived a life like this or felt this way before. And so over these last few weeks, we have been learning, this is kind of our big idea for our series, that Jesus doesn't just give you eternal life, he gives you a better life too. Thank God for eternal life. Not, don't want hell. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that I get eternity with Jesus. I get heaven, but I don't just get eternal life, I get a better life too. And so we've talked about generosity, purpose, gratitude, self-control, our pastoral team did an amazing job teaching on those topics. And today, I'm going to finish this series by talking about forgiveness. I'm going to talk about forgiveness. And to do that, we're going to read a conversation that Jesus had with uh, his disciples. It's in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible or your app or phone or whatever, uh, you, can, you can grab that. If not, it'll be on the screen. Hello to everybody watching online, by the way. Uh, we'll have the scriptures on the screen for you. But it's Matthew 18. There are four gospels. It just means it tells the story of Jesus's life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you're wanting to start reading the Bible, I'd recommend you starting there. You can start at page one if you want. Genesis is pretty good. Exodus, not so bad, but then it gets a little crazy. And so I would just encourage you to start at Matthew. You can work backwards at another point, but tells the story in the life of Jesus. We're getting kind of towards the end of the life of Jesus. And one day, Peter asked Jesus a question, and he's going to give us an answer, and he's going to tell us a story. So it's in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I'm going to read all the way to verse 35, all right? So here's what it says. It says, then Peter came to him, talking about Jesus, and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Now, let me stop for a second and say, what a great question. This is a question that every person in this room has wondered. We've asked this question before. Because you have somebody in your life that has hurt you. Or you have somebody in your life that keeps showing up that causes drama. Somebody that keeps causing problems for your life. And you want to know, how long do I have to put up with them? Because I'm a Christian, do I have to keep letting them eat at my dinner table? Do I have to keep forgiving them? And I love that we can open the Bible and find questions that we've asked ourselves. Because the Bible is relevant to our lives. If I have one soapbox that I want to stand on, it's this. The Bible is relevant to your life. If you read it, you'll find the answers you're looking for. 
Now you won't find like, should you paint the living room blue or yellow? But you will find the answers that you're looking for in the deepest parts of your soul. And anybody who tells you the Bible's outdated, irrelevant, or boring has never read it. Okay? Well, that's just my little sidebar there. Here we go. So, Jesus, so Peter comes to Jesus and said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then Peter says seven times. Which he probably wanted to say three, but he's talking to Jesus. So he rounded up thinking I'm giving a really high answer. You know, like seven. He's like elbowing his butt. He's like seven, <laughs> seven. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Somebody can do the math. Jesus was not giving a number, by the way. He was saying there's no limit. There's no limit. Therefore, he's going to tell a story. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date and with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. And his fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. And he had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. And when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. I, this, this, that sentence is so convicting because it reminds me that when I publicly tell people I follow Jesus, they pay attention to my life. And so if you say, hey, I follow Jesus, people are watching what you do and specifically how you treat people. And so these guys knew that this was a forgiven man and they're watching and they were very upset. And then they went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And then the king called in the man who had forgiven, had been, who he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And then, verse 35 that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Dang, tight. that's tough, that's tough, it's sharp. But it's true. And we wanna talk about that today. In, in, in this passage, we read Jesus answering a question from one of his disciples about forgiveness. And he's gonna give him an answer and we don't like the answer. And then he's going to tell a story. We don't mind the story until the last verse. But Jesus is trying to make a point to us. And so Jesus was asked the question. We read it. What is the appropriate amount of forgiveness for a follower of Jesus to give? And Jesus' answer was there is no limit. There's no limit. There's no limit to forgiveness. If you're a follower of Christ, if you have faith in Jesus, Jesus says First of all, stop counting. But second of all, if you are counting, don't stop counting because there is no limit to how many times you should forgive someone who does you wrong. This is, this is the kind of teaching that makes Christianity insanity. This is the kind of teaching that you'd have to be just completely filled with faith to believe that it's true. Nobody else in the world is telling you that there should be no limit to the amount of forgiveness you give someone, but Jesus is. 
And I don't know about you, but when I read something like this, I immediately have objections. You ever read the Bible and just object? Argue with it? Argue with God? When I read Jesus say that there is no limit to the quantity, to the amount of forgiveness that I should give someone who hurts me, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one, I think this is completely unreasonable. Completely unreasonable. Doesn't Jesus think that people should have to suffer some type of consequences for their decisions? I mean, doesn't Jesus know that if someone keeps getting forgiveness that they'll never feel bad about what they did? Doesn't he know that? If Jesus is saying that I have to forgive someone in limited amount of times, I object. Another thought that comes to mind is it's unwise. Not only is it unreasonable, it's unwise. Doesn't Jesus know that someone who hurts people will keep hurting people? You don't teach an old dog new tricks. Everybody's got that relative. Everybody's got that friend. They just don't know how to get it together. They just don't know how to stop hurting people. And if Jesus surely knows that that person's gonna keep hurting people. So Jesus just wants me to keep getting hurt? If that's what Jesus wants, if Jesus wants me to just keep getting hurt, then I object. But I think the biggest objection that I have, not only is it unreasonable, not only is it unwise, I think the biggest objection that I have is it's impossible. It's impossible. Does Jesus know how hard it was for me to muster up the courage and the heart and the love to forgive this person one time? I mean, it took me 15 years to finally say to them, I forgive you. He just wants me to keep forgiving. Jason, I can't do it. I just can't do it. It's impossible. And so is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus saying that there is no limit to the amount of forgiveness that a person who has a faith in Jesus should give to the people around them? even though it is unreasonable and, and seemingly unwise and, and seemingly impossible. Is that what Jesus is saying? Yes, that is exactly what Jesus is saying. That there is no limit for a Christian in the amount of forgiveness that we give to the people around us. So I'm sure when Jesus said this, the disciples had to be like, well, that's unreasonable, unwise, and impossible which is what we're thinking. And Jesus knowing what they're thinking and Jesus knowing what's in their heart and knowing what we're thinking and knowing how impossible it feels to us tells a story so that we can get to the heart of the matter of why and how a believer in Jesus should never limit the amount of forgiveness they give and how they could even do something like that. And so for this story we read, here's what I wanna do. I wanna try to just kind of Break this down in, in, in the simplest form that we can. As, ta- as we're talking about forgiveness, I want to talk about this. I want to answer these questions. What is it? What is forgiveness? Uh, second question I want to answer is, is, uh, is why is forgiveness important? Why is it important? And then the third question I want to answer is, how is it different for a Christian? What is forgiveness? Let's answer that question. How or, or why is it important? Let's answer that question. And then at the end, I want us to answer uh, how it's different for a Christian. So let's do that with this story. First question we want to answer is, what is it? What is forgiveness? What is it? Let's talk about what it's not first. Forgiveness is not condoning, excusing, denying, minimizing, or forgetting the wrong that somebody did to you. So our answer today to be able to, to, to forgive someone is not denial. It's not to, to you know, just say, well, you know what? It, it really wasn't that big of a deal after all. No, no, it was a big deal. It hurt. It was painful. It was negligent. It was wrong. 
Forgiveness is not denying any of those things. But I want to give you a definition for forgiveness. And I actually found this uh, just really nerding out, deep diving on this like research thing I was reading on the internet. But I came across this clinical definition of forgiveness that I thought, maybe it's just me, I thought it was amazing. I want to give it to you. This is what it says. It's a little long, but I love it all encompassing. It says, forgiveness is a freely made choice to give up revenge, resentment, or harsh judgments toward a person who caused a hurt and to strive to respond with generosity, compassion, and kindness towards that person. I loved this because it was so all-encompassing that it's not just about a feeling, it's a choice, and it's not just about removing the past, but it's also about the choices we make and how we treat those same people that we forgive moving forward. Let me read it again. It's a freely made choice, forgiveness, to give up revenge, resentment, or harsh judgments towards a person who caused a hurt and to strive to respond with generosity, compassion, and kindness towards that person. Now, again, we hear this definition and we're like, well, yeah, I mean, that would be amazing if it was possible. But who can do that? Who can, who can, who can choose to give up revenge, resentment, harsh judgments, and... and and, and respond with generosity, compassion, and kindness towards that person. Well, the point that Jesus is going to make is a Christian can. A person whose faith is in Jesus can. So how do we do that? How do we make the choice to give up the, the, the revenge of the past and move forward with generosity, generosity and kindness? He tells us in this story, just in this one verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 27, Jesus is going to answer the question, uh, what is forgiveness? He's going to answer it for us. And he's going to show us in three ways. Jesus was not giving us a step-by-step procedure, but we can easily take it as a step-by-step procedure because he lists them in order. And this is what he says in verse 27. In this parable, trying to explain forgiveness to us, Jesus says in verse 27, then his master was filled with pity for him, released him, and forgave his debt. If you have a way to mark up a Bible or something that you have or on your phone, I would encourage you to mark that. Because in this one little verse, Jesus gives us the process of forgiveness. The man who was owed took pity on his debtor, released him, and forgave the debt. And forgiveness requires all three. So let's look at those, let's look at those three. First, it says the man was filled with pity for him. Filled with pity. Now, pity, the way we use it in the English language, kind of has this air of superiority. Like, I pity you. Oh, you poor little thing. I pity you. But that's not exactly the word that that the Greek was using, to what it was exactly trying to get across. What would be more accurate would be the idea of your heart going out to someone. So it's not pity in the sense of, you poor little thing, you know, smacking their wrist. It's the idea of empathy and sympathy, the idea of your heart going out to someone. And so Jesus in this story is saying that the first step of forgiveness is to empathize and to sympathize with your offender. It sounds like the dumbest thing we've ever heard because it's the last thing we want to do. Frederick Buechner, a famous Christian author, said this. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. 
to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And I bring this up because I think we owe ourselves the honesty to, to really answer, do we want to let this thing go? You say, of course I want to let this thing go. Are you sure? Because isn't it true that the most fun of the seven deadly sins is anger? Isn't it true that there's an adrenaline that comes from a grudge? Isn't it true that there is an excitement that comes from the imaginary conversations and confrontations you have by yourself driving down the road? It's worth asking yourself, if you were, if God did help you to let go of the past, what would you talk about? Because this is pretty much all you talk about. What would you think about? Because this dominates your thoughts. Where would you get the excitement and the life and the adrenaline that you get right now from your grudge, from the past? This is why pity and empathy and sympathy is a requirement for forgiveness because when you stay angry, it makes you feel so righteous. We all do it. There is this self-righteousness that comes from being wronged. We were done wrong. And, and, and what happens when you are self-righteous and you feel wronged is that you, the, you have to dehumanize your offender. You have to characterize them. You have to take whatever mistake they did or whatever wrong that they did, and you have to blow it out of proportion so that the only way to define the person is by the offense. So they lied to you. And so when someone brings up their name, well, they're just a liar. They're just a liar. But you lie. If someone was to say to you, are you just a liar? You would say, no, I'm, I'm way more complex than that. I mean, I have lied. I remember the last time I lied. I didn't want to lie, but I got caught in the moment and, and, and it was easier to lie than to tell the truth. And so I, I gave into that because I, 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 it was just the easier thing to do. And if I could go back, I would, I would do it differently. I wouldn't lie, but I'm not just a liar. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I'm a loving person, but I did lie. But them, they're just a liar. That's all they are. You have to characterize them. You have to dehumanize them. They're just a pervert. They're just a heartless explicative. They're not a human being. They're just the thing that they did. And, and, and so as long as you cannot sympathize or empathize with the person who did you wrong, you will stay superior to them and you will never be able to forgive a person that you feel superior to. And this is where the the truth really will set us free, but it will break our hearts first. Because in some way you have to be willing to look at the person who did you wrong and say, I'm not really any different than they are. And even as I say that, some of you want to get up and walk out right now because you're thinking, do you know what they did? I'm nothing like them. I think if you would be willing to step back, you would be able to say, you know what? Yeah, you you haven't done maybe exactly what they did. 
but you can understand how you would at a minimum. You've hurt people before. You've lied to people before. You've let people down before. The same reason that you were able to do that to someone else is the same reason they were able to do it. And who knows if them doing it to you is the only thing that kept you from doing it to someone else. Forgiveness requires empathy and sympathy. It requires you to view the person who hurt you as not very much different than you are. If you're able to do that, to stop dehumanizing them and to start viewing them as a complex person just like you are a complex person, then the next step that Jesus says in the story is that he released him. So after you have shown the empathy and tapped into the sympathy, the next thing is you have to release the person of what they did. And this is more of the traditional Uh, idea of forgiveness. I forgive you. I accept your apology. I'm not going to hold it against you anymore. This is the idea of releasing. But practically speaking, what does it look like to release someone from a hurt of the past? Well, you've already empathized with them. So releasing could mean understanding what, how, what they did was possible, or it could mean telling them that you forgive them, or it could mean telling God that you forgive them. Sometimes releasing a person requires an incredibly grand gesture, symbolic gesture, even if it's between you and God. Uh, I think I've told this story before. I can't remember, but several years ago, uh, I I held a probably the the, the largest grudge of my life that I had ever held over uh, towards a person who had done something to me that I felt like was wrong. And, and man, I, I chewed on that bone for years um, and couldn't get past it, couldn't get past it. And every time I would try to get past it, you know, their name would come up and I would just pounce, you know. And um, one day I had a friend that we were driving in the car together and I, went, I started, I started my, my, my stump speech about this person and how they had hurt me. And my friend said to me, listen, I'm your friend and I'm with you no matter what, but I just want you to know you bring this up every time we're together. Like this is all you talk about. And in that moment, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. I didn't realize that every conversation led back to this hurt. And in that moment, my eyes were open and I realized, oh my gosh, they're right. This is what I talk about all the time. And I said to my friend, I said, I don't ever want to talk about it again. If I start talking about it, tell me to shut up. And I went home and and Andrea and the kids were out of town that week or group of days. I can't remember exactly. Maybe a weekend, I can't remember. And everybody deals with things differently. I'm an internal processor guy. So I was by myself in the house and I I, I wrote out a six-page letter to this person who hurt me. And when I got done, I went out in the backyard and I lit it on fire. And I told God, God, I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm putting a drop dead date. This is the date. I don't want to deal with it anymore, God. If you'll help me, I don't want to deal with it anymore. And of course, there are some scabs that get pulled. And every now and then there's a little twinge or whatever it is. But God helped me that night. My friend being honest with me helped me. And God helped me that night. And it was a grand gesture for me 
that I'm done with it. I'm done with it. And I think, I think it's very important. Our team will tell you that I say this to them all the time when there's something painful or hard or dramatic in your life. I will say to the team all the time, you get to have a pity party for a little while longer, but I want you to pick a date on the calendar. And when you get to that date, it's over. We're not talking about it anymore. So go ahead and milk it for all it's worth, but pick a date. And if I hear you bring it up or you hear me bring it up, we're cutting it off. And so this is, this is an example. Maybe this is a way that you release someone from something in the past. But I think there's, there's one more part of releasing. And I think it's probably maybe, maybe the most important, but often the most neglected. Because it's easier to, to not do it. I, I think maybe the most important thing you can do to release someone is to verbalize that you have released them. Here's what I mean. My example that I gave you, something really interesting happens with the relationships around you when you're hurt and you bring them into your hurt. By chance, if you happen to move on, the people around you don't move on. So when you have marriage trouble with a spouse and you tell your parents, you eventually forgive your spouse, but your parents don't forgive your spouse. You ever had that happen? And so, and so I think it's very important for the people that you've brought into your hurt and your drama when you move on that you talk about that you've released them. So in my instance, there were people around me who would bring it up because I had trained them. This is the best way to get an emotional response out of me. This is the best way to connect. This is the best way for us to have vulnerability, whatever it is, you know. So I trained them to bring up that topic. And I had to start saying to them, you know what? God has really helped me and I don't hold anything against them anymore. Matter of fact, I, I genuinely hope that good things happen to them. I just kept saying that, just kept saying that. You know what? I don't have any hard feelings anymore. I did, man, I did. But you know what? God has helped me and I've moved on from that. And I, I don't, no hard feelings, no ill will. I, I pray nothing but the best. And in some ways, you are kind of convincing yourself, but in a lot of ways, you are just saying out loud, the power of your words is saying out loud what you really mean to be true in your heart. That's in the past. And if I see that person, which I have, I'm gonna hug them. And I'm gonna say, good to see you, and I'm gonna mean it, because a lot of times you don't mean it. You're like, hey, good to see you. <laughs> really? But you know what? I mean it now. Good to see you. I've been praying for you. And so I think there's something to verbally saying out loud that you've, maybe to the person, but at a minimum to the people that you've brought into your drama. And so we have to have sympathy or empathy. We have to release them. And then the last thing that the man does in the story is he forgives the debt. He forgives the debt. And this is where maybe forgiveness goes into a, a place that we really don't like because we said earlier that forgiveness is not minimizing what someone did. It's not, it's not saying it didn't happen. It's not saying that there were no consequences for what happened. There definitely were consequences. You know, you've lived them, you've experienced them. But where forgiving debt comes in is that you are admitting that there is a deficit, but this person's not responsible for from making up the deficit anymore. You have taken on the deficit. Now you already had taken it on over the last three, five, 10, 50 years of your life. 
You just hadn't admitted to yourself that you were taking on the deficit. You were waiting on the other person to make up for the deficit. But forgiving the debt means I no longer am waiting on you or expecting you or or requiring you to repay this debt because I realize now you cannot repay it. It is a debt so large you cannot repay it according to this story. And so because I can sympathize and empathize why someone could possibly do something like this, and because I have released you, I am taking on the deficit. So because you walked out on me, Dad, for the rest of my life, I know that I will doubt authority figures, and I will wonder if the people who say they love me really love me. But I know you cannot make up that deficit. And so I will live with that deficit. I'm forgiving your debt, but that doesn't mean there's no debt. It means that for the rest of my life, I will pay your debt because that's what forgiveness is. So I know that you abused me physically and sexually and it has altered the way that I view myself when I look in the mirror and it has affected my marriage and it has caused me to have thoughts and feelings that that no person at that age should have and really no person should have. And my whole life, I had hoped that somehow you would be able to repay or make up for that deficit. But because I have been able with God's help to empathize and sympathize and because I have made the choice with God's help to release you, I am not requiring you to make up the deficit in my life. There is a deficit. There is a debt. But I will pay the debt. I'll deal with the insecurity. I'll deal with the perversion. I'll deal with the addiction. It's not your debt anymore. It's mine. You see how Jesus teaches a level of forgiveness that's way different than I accept your apology? It's the ability to pity the offender, the ability to release it, and the acceptance that there is a debt but the choice that you will spend your life repaying the debt that they caused. And so that's what it is. Why is it important? Well, it's important because unforgiveness is a prison. This is what the story teaches us, that that Jesus says it's a prison. Look at verse 34 and 35 in Matthew 18. Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the debt, entire debt. And then Jesus says, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. This seems incredibly harsh, incredibly harsh, but it's true. And I don't need to convince you it's true. You know it's true because you know that unforgiveness is a prison, that unforgiveness is a torture. the, the, The grudge and the hurt that you have lived with is torture. You know this. You know this. And so Jesus is making two points here. He's making one that's figurative and he's making one that's literal. The figurative point that he's making is that unforgiveness is an emotional prison. It's an emotional prison. There, I don't have time to read you all the research, but the University of Michigan in 2006 wanted to study the, 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 the physical, mental, and emotional benefits of forgiveness. And they found what you would expect, that, that forgiving yourself and forgiving someone unconditionally for what they did against you has such far-reaching physical, mental, and emotional benefits that to not forgive is a death sentence. And so Jesus is saying that figuratively speaking, 
unforgiveness, a grudge and hurt that you still hold on to is a, is a dungeon. It is a prison that holds you bound. And you know because you can't think about anything else and you can't talk about anything else. And every time you see light at the end of the tunnel, it's slammed in your face. The door's slammed in your face and you can't get out and you are trapped and you are locked. And Jesus says, yes, that is what unforgiveness is emotionally. But Jesus is also making a literal point here. And the literal point is that someone who refuses to forgive someone who hurt them will also face a literal eternal punishment and torture. And Jesus is talking about hell. So, so don't miss this because I don't want to brush past this. Jesus is saying a person who cannot forgive someone who hurt them from the past is destining themselves, destined to eternal torture and prison and punishment talking about hell, to which we have to stop and say, wait a second. I thought every, like every time I come here, Jason, you say it's not about behavior, it's about belief and it's Jesus that gets you to heaven and it's faith in Jesus. It's not about what we do or what we don't do. And now you're saying that Jesus is saying it's faith in Jesus plus forgiving others that's a requirement to go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying and that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is inverting it and he's saying that the fruit of your life really is an indicator for yourself if you truly have put your faith in Jesus Christ. So think of it this way. Somebody says they have an apple tree and you go look at it and you don't see any apples. And you say, there's no apples. And they say, yeah. And you say, have there ever been apples? They say, no. You'd say, well, that's not an apple tree. Jesus says it's the same thing when you talk to a person who says, and you say, are you a Christian? Is your faith in Jesus? Have you been forgiven of your sins? And they say, yes. And you say, are you able to forgive the person who hurt you? And they say, no. Jesus says it would be probably appropriate to say, I don't think you've experienced the forgiveness and faith in Jesus that you think you have. It's harsh. But it's true. It's true. To, to, to which we say, I don't know if I'm okay with that. How, you're telling me that I'm not a Christian if I don't forgive other people? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying a person, and Jesus is saying a person who cannot forgive a person who has done them wrong is a person who doesn't genuinely understand forgiveness. And this is a person who believed that debts still have to be paid in full by the person who did them. And a Christian does not believe that debts have to be paid in full by a person who did them. Which leads us to the last question we want to answer. How is it different for a Christian? I guess technically up to this point, you could not believe in Jesus, not want to be stuck in an emotional prison figure out a way to empathize and sympathize, release the person. I guess, technically speaking, you could do this. And listen, if you do, you will experience the happiness advantage that comes from living your life according to the teachings of Jesus. Technically speaking, you could do that. But for a Christian, there's another dimension. It's completely different for different reasons for a Christian. It's not just about the mental, physical, emotional benefits. This is really about the gospel message. See, the gospel message is that you have been forgiven an infinite debt. An infinite debt. And that because you have been forgiven an infinite debt, you have experienced an extravagant grace that you do not deserve. 
And so once you have been forgiven of that infinite debt and experienced that grace, it alters the way that you forgive others and give grace to others. A Christian who can't forgive either, either doesn't believe they've been forgiven No, let me say it this way. A Christian who doesn't believe in forgiveness either believes their debt was not unpayable by themselves or they believe that what someone did to them is worse than what their sin did to Jesus. It's the only two explanations. A Christian who believes that their sin, that they did, that that the offense that they committed against Jesus Christ is astronomically greater than what a person did to them, no matter how gross, disgusting, or hurtful, doesn't even come close to comparing to our offense against Jesus Christ. This is why it's different for a Christian. And this is so important because when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, they were praying, it's not great. They were listening to Jesus pray and they were like, okay, please teach us how to pray like you pray. And they came and asked Jesus that question and he only gave them a couple lines, but in just a couple of lines, he said this sentence. And when you pray, make sure you pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. There's only five or six lines in the prayer. And he included the idea that you are forgiven of your trespasses as you are forgiving those who trespassed against you. Jesus says part of the daily rhythm of our prayer life is being reminded of our wrongs, being asking for forgiveness for our wrongs, and then that should cause us, because we have been reminded of those wrongs and forgiven of those wrongs, it should cause us to have no objections to releasing other people of their wrongs against us. I was thinking this week, what, what is a real life example that we could compare to this? And I, I, I thought of one, it's a little bit political, so I hope I don't offend you, but it's, I don't, not trying to get into politics, so don't come talk to me after service, all right? I really genuinely don't care that much. Um, but one of the debates that are happen, is happening politically right now is student loan forgiveness. Student loan forgiveness. And what I love about the debate of student loan forgiveness is that there are two equally passionate responses on both sides. So the idea is floated out that the government would wipe away student loan debt. And you get two passionate responses. One passionate response is, are you kidding me? I have spent the last 25 years of my life paying off my debt a penny at a time. And now right at the time I get finished, they're just gonna wipe it away for everybody else? It's ridiculous. Maybe that's your argument. Then there's another argument that says, are you kidding me? I know the misery of making those payments every single month. And if there is any way that someone could avoid going through 25 or 35 years of their life not having to go what I went through, let's do it. Now, again, politically, I, I don't care, okay? But I think it's a beautiful example of the fact that there are generally two responses to extravagant, excessive grace. Are you kidding me? Or are you kidding me? 
and a person who has felt the pain of offense and knows that they have committed the pain of offense is a person who believes in extravagant grace. So I just want to end with this thought. As a person who is a Christian, as a person whose faith is in Jesus, Jesus is our example. Our faith is in a person. We follow a man named Jesus, a Middle Eastern man from 2,000 plus years ago. We want to live his life, live his words. And he gave us the most crystal clear example of forgiveness at the end of his earthly life. As he's hanging on the cross, he has been beaten and tortured by the same people that he has done miracles for and miraculously fed. And they're laughing at him and they're stripping him naked and they're gambling for his clothes and they're putting crown of thorns on his head. They've nailed him to the cross. And Jesus in that moment, because of his deity, has the opportunity more than any person in history to get even like no one could. I mean, he could have called out bears to eat them. He could have just struck them dead. He could have had lightning hit them. He could have made them all bald or given them all AIDS or he could, have, he could have made all their children hate them. I mean, he could have done anything he wanted to make their life miserable. Nobody had the opportunity and the power to get even like Jesus Christ in that moment. And in that moment, he did not get even. Instead, he prayed for his offenders. And he prayed a very simple but not easy prayer. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Luke chapter 23, verse 24. And this prayer has so impacted me over my life, over my Christian life. I believe it is the single greatest example that we have of what forgiveness looks like. But it's not just some whimsical, oh, you know, I forgive them. It is a true belief that the people who have hurt you genuinely don't know what they're doing. Because you didn't know what you were doing when you offended God. The reason forgiveness is so hard is because we're waiting on the other person to ask for it or to admit that what they did was wrong, but it's never gonna happen because they don't know they need to or they don't think they need to. They had reasons for doing what they did just like you have reasons for doing what you did. Was it wrong? Yeah. But they didn't know what they were doing and they definitely didn't know how much it hurt you. And I'm sure that there is some small percentage of people in the world who are terrible, hateful, despicable human beings and they just hurt people on purpose for the fun of it. I've just never met one. I just meet lots of hurt people who hurt people because hurt people hurt people. And so what if today with God's gracious help, we were able to make the same decision that Jesus did hanging on the cross and we looked at our offender or we thought about our offender and we said, God, will you forgive them? because they didn't know what they were doing. And some of you are like, are you kidding? They knew exactly what they were doing. I don't think so. I mean, yeah, they may have known the action that they were doing was wrong, but they didn't know it was gonna define your life for the next 60 years. They didn't know it was gonna make you doubt yourself, battle insecurity, battle addictions. They had no idea that they were gonna cause, it was gonna cause you to, to doubt trusting in people and have authority issues. They had no idea that it was gonna make you have a poverty mindset for the rest of your life. They had no idea that you would never be able to be financially stable. They had no idea. And as long as you believe that their intention in life was to destroy yours, you'll never be able to forgive them. 
if somehow you are able to empathize and sympathize and to release them and to forgive the debt, you can pray the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They didn't know what they were doing. And I can believe that because God, I didn't know what I was doing when I hung you on the cross. So that's my challenge for you today is the simple but not easy sentence that I would encourage you to write down or put in your phone or because somebody right now is coming to mind. Somebody in your, in your heart right now is coming to mind. It's just a simple sentence that says, God, forgive blank for blank because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, they were selfish, but they, they didn't realize they were being selfish. Yes, they were perverted, but they, they had some things going on mentally. I, I, they, they didn't know. I choose to believe that if they would have known, they wouldn't have done it. God, God forgive my dad for walking out on me. He, he, he was just trying to find happiness and he didn't realize that he was sacrificing me to do it. God, forgive blank for blank. Put a name in that line and put an offense on that line and ask God to forgive them and for, to help you forgive them based on the belief that they did not know what they were doing. And if they did, they wouldn't have done it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for Jesus, for the example of God in the flesh coming to this earth being sacrificed like a lamb to slaughter. Dying on the cross to take all of my offenses and all of my sins and all of my wrongs and paying my debt in full because it was a debt that I could not repay. And God, I pray that right now in this moment, you would help me to really believe that my debt to you is far greater than any debt anyone owes me. God, I pray that if I have not experienced that extravagant grace, I would experience it. And that it would so dramatically change my heart and my life that I would be an extravagant grace giver. That I would let go of the past, that I would move forward into the future with generosity, warmth, and love. That I would stop seeking the, 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 the sick enjoyment of a grudge and of hurt. And I would put my whole life in your hands, including the pain of yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.